0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with writer Danny Shapiro about being raised an Orthodox Jew, about being vulnerable in her work, and about writing her way out of an existential crisis.
1: All day long I would do everything I needed to do. I would take care of work. I would take care of my baby. I would take care of my family. I would have my to-do list. I would pass out at the end of that day, and then at 3 o'clock in the morning, it was like the hour of truth.
0: Here's Debbie Millman. What does it take to lead a creative life? What does it take, year in and year out, to turn what's in your imagination into a reality? How do you stay disciplined when pretty much everything in our world conspires against it? These are some of the questions Danny Shapiro addresses in her new book, Still Writing?, perils and pleasures of a creative life. It's about writing and the writer's life, but the same lessons apply to all creative disciplines, including design. Kenny Shapiro speaks from her own vast experience, both as a writer and teaching others to write. Her books include five novels and the best-selling memoirs Devotion and Slow Motion. She's here to talk about her new work, her books, and what it took to see them into the world. Danny Shapiro, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. It's great to be here with you. So Danny, is it true that when you were nine months old you were the beech nut baby food baby? And when you were two years old, you were the Kodak Christmas poster child? This is true. <laughs> so what you grew up in New Jersey in an Orthodox Jewish home. How does one become a Kodak Christmas poster child?
1: You know, I asked my mother that question so many times and never received a completely satisfying answer to it because the way that my mother made it sound was like I was just playing in our New Jersey backyard and then suddenly I was on a billboard. (laughs) and (laughs) And you would discover it in the backyard? Yeah, somehow. And I think really what happened is that my mother had been in advertising before she married my father. She knew art directors and photographers and a photographer had taken my picture as a two-and-a-half-year-old, I think. And then the Kodak people were in his studio and saw the picture, and I think that that's how the Christmas poster came to be. But it was like this mythology of my childhood that I was this
0: little Orthodox Jewish girl wishing the entire world a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I love it. The picture's adorable as well. So you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. Sabbath was observed. Your dad wore a yarmulke. Your family kept meat and dairy separate. I, I grew up that way, too. My grandparents were Orthodox Jews. How would you say that that shaped who you are and who you became? In so many ways. I,
1: my education, first of all, was I went to yeshiva until I was in seventh grade, and then I went to prep school. So I had this very strange divide, almost like a before and after in, in my childhood. That happened because my father was Orthodox and my mother was not. They had a very contentious marriage, and a lot of what they fought about was me and how to raise me. So it was very confusing to me growing up, and I think that that confusion was something that I carried into my early adulthood and also the feeling of having been raised with such a set of rules and such a you know, way of being in the world and way of thinking that was just never really explained or certainly that I never really understood. It was just, this is the way it is. We do this because our fathers and our fathers' fathers and our fathers' fathers did this before us. It didn't resonate for me, but it was also a comfort because it was just this feeling of this is a way of belonging. And yet it didn't feel entirely to me like I did belong or that it sort of worked for me. And also there was all this rebellion when I was in high school and all my friends were doing like really illicit things I was like sneaking bacon, <laughs> and I really yeah. thought that God might strike me dead yes, for I, eating bacon.
0: I, I remember a part where you talked about how your biggest rebellion, probably before bacon, was driving on the Sabbath, which right. you're not supposed to do. Right,
1: exactly. And so I think once I actually hit my college years and was out in the world, my rebellion took on kind of dangerous um undertones because I hadn't rebelled at all. There was no on-ramp. I was very cosseted and protected, and then I was out there in the world.
0: Was there ever a time in your life where you actually felt you might end up as well being an Orthodox Jew and following in the footsteps of your father's beliefs?
1: Never. Never. Which is such a strange thing. That's an interesting question because I adored my father. I loved his faith, and I loved being around him in his faith, but there was never a moment for me where I thought, I'm going to grow up this way and I'm going to marry an Orthodox man and have an Orthodox family and and live that life. Never.
0: So you were an only child and you grew up in an environment that was very hostile in a lot of ways. Um, Your parents had three previous marriages between them. There were a lot of secrets, a lot of tension, a lot of arguing. And you write that you saw your mother as indestructible, and a therapist once told you that your mother reminded her of Mary Tyler Moore's role in the film Ordinary People. What was that like for you? How did you cope? I had a very complicated relationship with my mother, but
1: she did love me. I actually have a half-sister who's from my father's, first marriage, who is a psychoanalyst. It's a family that produced a writer and a psychoanalyst. Not much more needs to be really said than that. But um, <laughs> She's quite a bit older. She's 15 years older. And she was very eager to diagnose my mother always. So when I was a teenager, I started reading about borderline personality disorders with narcissistic features. That was my mother. It, it just was. And for years, the question that I would ask every therapist I ever went to was, why am I okay? It's kind of crazy that I'm okay. My mother-in-law, who I adore and who had a chance to know my mother and get a pretty big dose of my mother um, when my husband and I were first together, once turned to me and she just said in this classic like folk wisdom way, she said, honey, you must have a hell of a constitution. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. There is something constitutional about it because I think the relationship that I had with my mother could have really destroyed some people. And it didn't destroy me. And as a mother myself now, I have a 14-year-old son. When I think of some of the ways... I mean, she was envious of me. And she was highly competitive with me. And there were certain ways in which she did not want me to succeed. And yet at the same time, she did love me. She loved me kind of as an extension of herself. But it was the closest that she could come to love. And that may be part of it, too, is that I did grow up feeling loved,
0: even though I felt that I had to be a certain way or act a certain way in order to be loved. But it's interesting to come back to the question of why am I okay or how did how did I turn out okay? I think that there has to be something about one's foundation that includes some sort of persistence or stamina or grit or determination to make your life okay.
1: Absolutely. When, when I was trying to come up with what the Dedication for my memoir, Slow Motion, should be. It was in memory of a lot of people in my family who were no longer uh, alive, but it was also I wanted to acknowledge my mother and I wanted to say something that was true and also useful and kind. I came up against this any number of times in my relationship with my mother. But the dedication ultimately reads, For my mother who taught me something about survival, because my mother was a true survivor. Whether I inherited that from her genetically or was it was it nature, was it nurture, I don't know, but I think that that was true of me as well.
0: You wrote Slow Motion in 1998 and you start the book by talking about your early life and you say, I spent my early life surrounded by silence, thinking my thoughts, dreaming my dreams, inventing a self out of thin air. I had no one to reflect this self back to me. But you were always writing journals, diaries, stories, letters. How did this help you, or did it help you? Mm,
1: Absolutely. I think writing saved my life again and again and again throughout my life. But in my early life, before I knew that I was a writer, before I knew that it was possible to be a writer, to spend my life doing this, I think that it gave shape to my inner world. On the page, I've I've never, ever known what I'm thinking. I don't know whether most people walk around feeling that way, but I know that for me, I write something and then I read it and think, oh, that's what I think, or that's what I'm afraid of, or that's what I understand. One of my favorite quotes about writing is from Joan Didion. It was in an essay called Why I Write, where she writes, um, had I had even the remotest access to my conscious mind, I never would have become a writer.
0: Hmm, that's stunning. Yeah. But you didn't intend on becoming a writer. In fact, you thought your writings were crazy back when you were first writing as a, as a young person. Um, I know you were quite a good piano player. Did you want to be a musician?
1: I was passionate about piano and music, but I think I was actually emulating my older sister, the psychoanalyst, who was a very good pianist, and her mother my father's first wife was actually a concert pianist and chair of the music department at NYU. And and I'd, I wasn't surrounded by a lot of accomplished women. And so there was a way in which I was sort of inhaling accomplishment and trying to make my way and think, well, what is this and what should I do with my life? And and even though when I went to Sarah Lawrence, I went in part because I knew they had a good music program, I don't really think I ever thought that I was going to be a concert pianist I just didn't know that you could be a writer. And so I made up stories all the time. And you thought you were a liar for writing them. I thought that I might be a pathological liar. (laughs) What I didn't know as a protection against being a pathological liar is even thinking that you might be a pathological (laughs) liar. People who are pathological don't sit around mulling over whether they're pathological or not. But (laughs) I I I did know that I was always making things up and wanting to sort of pass them off in some way as being
0: true but I think that that was the fictive impulse. I just had no idea that that's what I was doing. So after high school, you decide to go to Sarah Lawrence. And when you're there, as, almost as soon as you get there, you meet a young woman who becomes your best friend. Yet when you meet her, you don't understand why she wants to be friends with you. And you stay. And this is so touching and heartbreaking. I want to read this paragraph. I couldn't imagine why. I saw myself as a formless, shapeless blob from New Jersey. I'd gone to yeshiva until seventh grade and then to prep school. By the time I was looking at college, I was in the middle of a full-blown identity crisis. I was wearing an Indian print skirt, an orange cotton blouse, and a matching Indian shawl, my stab at looking like a bohemian Sarah Lawrence type." So there's so many things about that paragraph that are so resonant. I was so struck by the notion that you remembered the clothes you were wearing so vividly, and time and time again you bring this back up in, in actually both slow motion and devotion as well as still writing this sort of sense of almost a photographic instant that occurs in your life where you remember every single detail about what you were wearing. Mm. What do you think that's about? Oh, I love that question. I think that in moments that
1: either in the moment themselves or in retrospect become like raised up almost like braille-like, like this is a transformative moment. This is a moment that where where a shift is taking place, you know, whether I know it or I don't know it, that everything around that becomes very heightened. I
0: can remember the weather those days, too. And you talk about remembering light, and you talk about remembering the way the air felt. It's such an interesting way of remembering. One of the
1: things that I write and still writing is that the poet Anne Sexton, when she's asked about why she wrote about such painful things, says, pain engraves a deeper memory. But... It doesn't entirely apply to this, because as I was sitting in that auditorium wearing, I can still see right now, as we're sitting here talking, exactly that skirt and that shawl. And I think partly it also had to do with, I mean, look, I I was raised by a mother who was very interested in beauty, in style. It was her great gift, actually, I, I understand now, that she actually had tremendous, a tremendous eye for design, for fashion, for art, I was her greatest work of art. For years and years, I would have a conversation with my mother. I'd call her up to say, I'm going to, I don't know, some dinner on Saturday night, and she would say, well, what are you wearing? Or if if I were shopping with her, she would say, well, how do you want to look? You know, we don't get away from that stuff. I would say probably in most major important transitions or powerful moments in my life, I can describe physically what I was wearing, but also my surroundings. Um, whereas things like, what did I eat for breakfast that day, I couldn't possibly tell you.
0: <laughs> now, despite how close you are with your, your new best friend, you find yourself almost accidentally in a relationship with her stepfather, um, who turns out to be a pathological liar and a criminal. Um, what made him so intriguing to you? He pursued me. It's so <laughs> yeah, That's pathetic. why I married my first husband, it's just because so, he asked, basically. It's so incredibly <laughs>
1: pathetic, um, and it's not remotely meant to – You know, I think in slow motion, I very clearly do not take myself off the hook on any level. Not but, at all. But I was ripe right for the picking, and I had the extraordinary bad luck to cross paths with someone who was extremely persuasive and powerful – and did not take no for an answer. I And he tried. was very, very wealthy. He was very wealthy. He was very powerful. He was very um, schooled in sweeping, you know, young women off their feet. And I actually did try to say no, and he just kept coming after me. And But what's interesting is when I started teaching college students and I would meet young women and realize they were around the age that I was when all this happened in my life – and I could look around a room of, say, 20 women, 20 young women, and I could pretty much pick the one or two who would have done what I did. And, you know, and there were others who would have just gone and gotten a restraining order, <laughs> you know, or, or called their parents and said, you know what, I, I don't know what to do about this. Or just found some way to get adult counsel or figure out some way of fighting back, of just saying no and actually really meaning it. I did not have, I was an amoeba. I was this kind of shapeless blob, very unformed. When I look at pictures of myself from that age, I really, I'm like, I'm just a lost little girl. And I could have had a garden variety bad college boyfriend. Instead, I
0: just kind of hit the jackpot. Well, you you do have quite an incredible downward spiral into... Bottoming out essentially, Mm -hmm. Um, and slow motion is very much that story. And you find yourself drinking until you black out. You're binging on cocaine. You're starving or making yourself throw up after eating. Yet you write at that point that you think you're indestructible and figure you have until about thirty. And you write at thirty, I'll expire like a bright flame, burning itself out. You really only imagined your life at that point only going until 30? Did you feel that hopeless?
1: I think I just couldn't imagine adulthood. I was so much living in the moment that I was in, and I couldn't see any way out of the moment that I was in. And I would say didn't yet have any sense of myself or what I might be able to do with myself. I mean, I really had a very intense and bizarre sense of almost existential, like meaninglessness, and worthlessness, uh, self-worthlessness, which is just baffling to me now when I look back, because I actually, the woman that I grew up and into, I think I always was. And that period of years was like this very strange detour. That I would say began probably at around age 15 and lasted until 24. This period of time that was just a shadow passing over my life. And that could have killed me. I mean, very easily I could have not come out of.
0: Everything in your life changes instantly, When one blizzardy winter night, your parents get into a terrible, horrific car crash. Your father's injuries result in his death two weeks later, and your mother suffers 80 broken bones. You refer to your life in two parts in slow motion, before the accident and after. Do you feel that you were really two different people before the accident and after in looking back on it now?
1: The accident was a shock to my system. It completely in in one moment changed my relationship to the world around me, to the future, to my family, and most significantly to myself. I don't think we're we're, we're ever different people. But what I do think is that I became instantly and profoundly aware that my father died disappointed and sad and afraid for me, and that I couldn't change that, that I was never going to be able to fix that, that I was never going to be able to take that back, but that what I could do, and the only thing that I could do, is to make his death mean something by living in a way from that moment forward. It's like I didn't have an internal compass that I could identify. So he became my internal compass.
0: I got the sense in slow motion that you didn't realize that you were on a downward spiral until the accident. That prior to that, you were sort of swept up into this sort of power and sort of fanciness that you hadn't experienced before. And then suddenly this accident happens and suddenly your life becomes incredibly into focus. There's this beautiful line in this Delmore Schwartz story that I love called In Dreams Begin
1: Responsibilities. It's very late in the story, and this um, usher in a movie theater turns to the Delmore Schwartz character in the story and says, Don't you realize that everything you do matters? I had been swept up, and I was also very numb. I was numbing myself. I was numb by the whole situation. I'd gotten pretty far into something that I didn't know how to get out of, but the feeling that there were profound consequences that... We are sum totals of our actions and our choices and our decisions and the way that we live moment to moment. And I think at that moment of my parents' accident, that was the shift for me. It matters. It matters enormously. And I mean, one of the reasons why ultimately I wrote Slow Motion is because it was the worst moment in my life, but it also turned out to be the moment that saved my life the transformative moment and how the worst moment can be the transformative moment was something that I didn't know how to get my head around, but it was so clearly the case. If my parents' accident hadn't happened,
0: I don't know how I would have surfaced or whether I would have surfaced. So despite the realization at the time of your life that you thought you would weep for the rest of your life, as you put it, you don't. And somehow you managed to recover. And in fact, I read on Huffington Post, in your grief and shock, you were in some ways reborn. Mm -hmm. How did you recover?
1: I think in part by making it mean something. The years after my father's death, I took care of my mother, you know, whether I, felt like it or not it was just that you were very dutiful that was my job yeah and I went back to college and I because I had dropped out and I finished Sarah Lawrence and I stayed for graduate school and I wrote my first novel and it was like I was shot out of a cannon the feeling that I had was I had so much to prove to myself to the world I mean when I went to Sarah Lawrence I actually went after my junior year of high school when I dropped out of Sarah Lawrence My terminal degree at that point was from the sixth grade at the Solomon and Schechter School of Union, New Jersey. I I went from being like a – someone without even a high school degree to a few years later having an MFA and having my first novel come out and being like written about as precocious at the age of 26 or 27. I actually wrote about my parents' car accident in that novel. I wasn't remotely ready to write about it, but – It felt like a draft – for it was motion. It was eventually – it was like that. It just was a, a highly autobiographical first novel, the most interesting parts of which were the
0: invented parts, but I didn't know that. Both slow motion and devotion are incredibly candid. You don't let yourself off the hook for anything. And in an interview with Oprah, you stated that covering up our vulnerabilities is a massive waste of energy. Do you ever feel embarrassed or ashamed of your vulnerabilities? How do you get to this place of acceptance?
1: It's really been in very recent years that I'm much more fully coming into that place of acceptance. I mean, when I wrote Slow Motion, the whole time I was writing that book, I told myself that I could change my mind, even though I had a book contract and it was how I made my living. And, you know, I was really kind of fooling myself by telling myself I could change my mind. Then when it came out into the world, I was quaking in my boots because I felt very exposed. And even though the memoir was in large part about my family and my parents and my family history and all of that, it was also, and the parts that were salacious were the parts that tended to get the most attention. When when you bring out a memoir, the feeling is of being of the life being reviewed, not the book being reviewed. Ultimately, my memoirs are crafted. There's much that it, I didn't write about in slow motion. To me, memoir and essay and the kind of nonfiction writing that I've done, including still writing because it's a form of memoir as well, is the act of crafting a story. It's actually tremendously controlled. It is the act of exerting my own shape on what is otherwise chaotic. That has, over the years, made me feel less and less exposed because I've chosen exactly what I want to reveal and how to reveal it. And I've recognized the story in my life. It's not all interesting, you know, and it's not all, I say to my students, it's like the kitchen sink approach to memoir. Just because it happened does not make it compelling. It does not make it a story. Especially writing devotion taught me this because devotion's is a spiritual memoir. When I was writing it, I really felt like I might be writing something that no one would want to read because it was so idiosyncratically me, and who, other than me, would find this interesting, and yet I felt completely compelled to write it, and then when it came out, the opposite happened. People from every walk of life and every background and every religion and every complicated relationship with their family and their the letters that I I got from people were so extraordinary, and what I think what I started to realize was that deep inside we are all so much the same, we are so our details might be different, but we're kind of walking the same internal path. And when I allow myself to be vulnerable, I'm
0: allowing myself to connect. I'm allowing people to connect to me. Um, you have a, a wonderfully candid article on your blog about this very subject. It's titled On Vulnerability, and you write the following. Let me pose a question. Do any of us have perfect lives, or do we carefully curate our public personas keeping our true selves safe hidden from view? Of course, we show only what we want the world to see. In my case, if you were to go to my Facebook page, you would see an author who apparently never has a bad hair day, who happily travels from city to city, occasionally posting announcements about readings or appearances or good news about her book, her family, her life. She'll post a trailer of her husband's new film, but won't write about the years of struggle, the sleepless nights, the financial upheaval of making that film. She'll post a photo of herself on Oprah or giving a big reading, but she won't post a photo from the day before where only 10 people showed up in a bookstore. She'll put up a selfie up on Instagram. Is there anything less revealing of self than a selfie, but only from a good angle in a place she wants to be seen? Why is this the way it is now? I mean, we have this Deep desire to read memoirs and to learn about others and to really connect with those vulnerabilities. Yet we're so sort of good hair day on Facebook. Woohoo! I think it's an outgrowth of I mean, we just
1: continue as a culture to turn up the volume on what it means to live out loud. Mm. I mean, I even have friends who I have misunderstandings with because they they mistake me for my Facebook page. I have one friend in particular who didn't call me after I was on Oprah, and my feelings were really hurt. This is a really good friend. And she said, well, I saw all of those comments on your Facebook page, and I thought, you well, she doesn't need to hear from me. Oh. You know, I was like, well, actually, I did need to hear from you, and I don't know any of those people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what was it like being on Oprah, by the way? <laughs> was it amazing? It was awesome. It really was. And what was so extraordinary about that experience is that she is an incredible listener. She's really curious. And so there was this feeling that I had of being there with her, where I really forgot that I was being interviewed, to the degree that you can when you're sitting on you know stage in the, the with, the, Oprah, the st- with the Oprah, Oprah, you know. But I, I I did have a little bit of a moment of like every once in a while I'd be like, you're Oprah, and here we are. But you know, it all kind of went away. It all stopped being about this big thing that was happening, and really was a genuine conversation, which I think is a, a great gift of hers.
0: Now, you wrote Devotion after you experienced an existential panic. You described it as a feeling of falling with no one there to catch you. What triggered this? It was a whole bunch of things. If any of them
1: had not happened, it might, I might never have felt the need to write this book. So one was entering my 40s, which Carl Jung describes as the afternoon of life. He says, thoroughly unprepared, we take the step into the afternoon of life. Actually, he defines midlife as age 35 and up. But, oh, God. Yeah, sorry.
0: I'm elderly.
1: <laughs> elderly. So there's young, Then, and this, this feeling of just dark night of the soul. I had moved with my husband and very young son from New York City to rural Connecticut post 9-11. There was a lot of panic and a lot of a lot of anxiety. My son had been very sick as a baby. He was born in 1999. He was sick in the year 2000 with a rare seizure disorder that he recovered from, but was terrifying. Um, the odds were seven out of a million babies were diagnosed with this very rare disorder, and only 15% of them survive. We faced those odds. We actually came out the other side completely. I mean, he's totally fine. But I, the wound of my parents' accident, was, like, reactivated. This feeling of, yeah, nothing, it like... The other shoe will drop. There is another shoe, and it will drop. And as we were coming out of that, we were living in Brooklyn, 9-11 happened. And I think everyone has their 9-11 story. But for me personally, it was that moment in my brokenheartedness. I just thought, I don't want to be here anymore. And it wasn't fear in the simple sense. It really was more a tremendous need for peace. So we moved to the country. We made a circle around... New York City, a two-hour circle, and I didn't want to go to New Jersey. I was from there. I didn't want to go to Long Island. Terrible commute. We didn't need to live in the suburbs. We ended up in this beautiful, bucolic, peaceful part of the world, and yet I was waking up with this pounding heart, and it was as if all day long I would do everything I needed to do. I would take care of work. I would take care of my baby. I would take care of my family. I would have my to-do list I would pass out at the end of that day, and then at 3 o'clock in the morning, it was like the hour of truth. I felt like I was falling, like, and there was just nothing to catch me. I felt really like waking up into this panic. And I went to see a doctor friend, and I said, you know, maybe I need to be on drugs. What do I do? And he said, no, you're having an existential crisis. This is what it is. And, and then I recognized it as a spiritual crisis. It sort of all came—and then— What happened is what always happens when I have to figure something out in my life is I write about it. The writing of devotion was the act of devotion. It was the writing of devotion was going on a spiritual journey that I don't think I would have had the nerve, the courage or the wherewithal or the sense of permission to go on
0: without writing a book about it. Did you know what you believed at the time? Absolutely not. Did you feel like you needed to believe something?
1: I felt like I needed to be able to say that I had thought deeply about it. I needed to feel like I had thought deeply about it. I mean, I discarded the rules and rituals that I had been raised with, but hadn't replaced them with anything. And there I was raising a kid in the countryside of Connecticut where there were no Jews, I remember he was at a school where I think he was actually the only Jewish kid in the entire school, and my husband and I were at the Christmas concert. It wasn't a holiday concert; it wasn't a winter you solstice. Your, card, your poster there, <laughs> <laughs> posters of Little Danny with the train, and the class that Jacob was in sang the one Hanukkah song. Everything else was Silent Night and and beautiful hymns, gorgeous music, and Jacob's class sang. A little Hanukkah song, and my husband leaned over to me and he said, "That's for us." You <laughs> were the tokens. We are the only Jews, and so I felt like I had to, I had to think about it. Now that my twenties, now that my thirties, have passed, now that I have this child who's asking me what I believe, I better start thinking about this.
0: As I was reading Devotion, I got the sense that one of the biggest revelations that you had, no pun intended, was about the idea of time. And you talk about how Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, considers the idea of time as a cathedral. And that, for me, felt like one of the most spiritual awakenings in the book and, and even in my own relationship with time and seeing what can be finite or infinite.
1: I loved that so much when I came across it. It felt like it was speaking so completely to what that existential crisis really was for me, which was, how do we live in the moment? How do we actually be right here, right now, not leaning toward the future, not leaning backwards into the past, and how difficult it is? It's another one of those essential sort of how-to-be-human lessons. How do we find a way to inhabit the moment more often than not. How many times have we had the experience of like driving a car down a road and suddenly realizing 20 minutes have gone by and I've arrived at my destination and I have no idea how I got here or what just happened. I don't remember crossing
0: the street. Right.
1: That was so powerful for me, that feeling. I wanted to freeze time, you know, like, like freeze the moment that I was in as I was in it, which is the opposite of being in the moment, of sort of just staying there that felt to me like a real spiritual pursuit to try to understand that and think about that and and in a meditation practice how to how to be aware of when my mind was wandering and just simply shepherding it back, like come back, begin again, begin again.
0: What made you decide to write Still Writing? Did you ever really stop writing? No. No, Still Writing, the title of Still Writing
1: came to me pretty early on and it, and it refers to a couple of things. One is the stillness that's just required to be able to do good work. And the other was this very, oh. yeah. <laughs> so the stillness, but the other was this very, to me, annoying thing that would happen again and again and again at parties and dinners where somebody would say to me, so are you still writing? And I would think, really? You know, wh- what is it What is it going to take to have that question stop being asked? And And I took sort of an informal poll of a lot of my artist friends and just realized that it's a question that people ask artists. It's not particularly women. It's not particularly writers. It's not particularly famous or not famous. Just this question, are you still writing? The genesis for the book was actually a blog, the blog that you referenced. I started that blog about five or six years ago entirely because my publisher told me I should have a blog. And I thought, what can I blog about that I can live with myself about? So when I happened upon this idea of writing about what it takes, writing about the creative process, I started doing it. Yeah, I was never a prolific blogger. You know, once a week is probably my maximum at the height of my blogging. But I would get these emails daily from other writers saying thank you. And all of them said, this is what I needed to read today. Every time I blog, even now, sure enough, the mail starts coming in and it's, this is what I needed to read today. And it can be from writers who are just starting out. And it was from writers that I admired and I had no idea would need to... So so I, I started writing it to sort of help myself. And then it turned out that it was helping a lot of other people. And so the book evolved from there. I thought my next book after Devotion was going to be a novel. And instead, people were actually asking me to write this book. And how often does that happen? You start a book, and the world is not asking for it. It doesn't exist. It's anything other than a glimmer in your head. And here we're actually people saying, so when's the book coming out?
0: You begin still writing by describing how a few years ago a local high school student asked you— if a student who is interested in becoming a writer could observe you (laughs) and you decided to outline what the student might see if they did come and observe you and you write, the poor student would watch you sit, then stand, then sit again, decide that you needed more coffee, come back up, sit again, get up, comb your hair, sit again, stare at the screen, check email, stand up, pet the dog, sit down, and so forth. (laughs) So really is that the way it happens? Well, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, there's, there's hardly anything. Completely. I mean, I try to keep my butt in the chair as much as I possibly can. Somebody once said, it's not it's not the writing, it's the sitting down to write. <laughs> but, you know, it's always, you know, when, when Hollywood tries to dramatize, you know, what it is to be a writer, there's that moment in that movie um, it called something, Something's something Got to Give with Diane Keaton. Playing oh, a I love that movie so much. But there, when she's filmed writing in it, she's sitting in front of her computer going like, ah, ha, 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 ha. you know, or boo. <laughs> yeah, she's you crying, know. a lot yeah, of crying. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I don't know what my face looks like when I'm actually writing, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not laughing or crying. I probably am like clenching my
0: jaw and like, you know, I think I have my mean face on. When mean I'm writing. Face. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure I want to see my face. Exactly. I loved it when you were um, interviewed by Jonathan Field from Good Life Project. You joked about how when you are supposed to be writing and you're on Twitter, you use the hashtag I'm writing. <laughs> well, I love that hashtag am writing on Twitter because it's like, no, you're not, you know, <laughs> no, you're absolutely not writing. And I'm not either. We're on Twitter. Now, you describe um, in the book something that you call traces that live within us often lead us to our stories and state that Joan Didion called this a shimmer around the edges. Can you elaborate a little bit about Mm -hmm. that?
1: I think it's the feeling of something becoming heightened in just a moment where, for me, I know that it's going into a place where it's like storing itself somewhere inside of me. I really think it is unmistakable when it happens, and it's just... And then sometimes it requires a lot of patience to make sense of it. It's not like that shimmer happens and then, Eureka, you have a story. It's like that shimmer happens and then sometimes it can be years before it connects to something else that then makes the story clear or makes clear
0: why it shimmered. You suggest that we not discount these moments. And you write, it can happen in a split second or as a slow dawning. It happens when our stories collide with the present. When it arrives, it's unmistakable, indelible. It comes with the certainty of its own rightness. And, Danny, I want to ask you, how do you know when to trust it?
1: I think there's a diving in that has to happen before you can know. Which is one of the reasons why writing is so torturous. I had this realization recently. Around the holidays, I was thinking about lists. You know, we all love lists. and, um, And I was thinking, what would a list be if I were thinking of a list of what it takes to embark on a big creative piece of work? And I had no idea what the list would be except for the last two. What would they be? The penultimate one is despair. (laughs) complete and total on the floor in a friggin' puddle of hopelessness and despair. Because then the final one is just hurling oneself headlong into the abyss. Because what else is there to do after that despair? You know, it's like, it's why when people say to me, "Oh, you're a writer. How fun!" <laughs> like really, woohoo! woo-hoo. <laughs> yeah, ha ha. Um, and because that hurling requires truly not knowing. All you can have is this feeling of, "I think I've got something to go on here. Maybe I have something to go on here, but I've got to dive in. Only by diving will there be water underneath me. Hopefully." And there's no way of knowing until you do it. I mean, look, I've been traveling since Still Writing came out six months six months ago. Um, as I've been traveling, I've been carrying a notebook around with me. I got this special notebook. It was a notebook I saw someone have that I really liked. I ordered it on the internet. It came. I have packed that notebook in bag after bag, schlepped it from city to city to city because... It's the notebook I'm going to start my next book in. Have you started it yet? I have it with me today. No, not one single solitary word, because the notebook has become very important. The (laughs) notebook has become the notebook that I'm going to start my next book in. And if I make a mark in that notebook, that's not the right mark. It's like it's become this ludicrous thing. And I know it's ludicrous. And I actually sat this afternoon at a cafe for two hours reading, and I had the notebook with me. And I was determined that today I was going to scribble something in that. It could be a picture of a daisy, but to scribble (laughs) something in the notebook. And I couldn't do it. That feeling of, but I got to know. I got to know it's right before I start. And the impossibility of
0: knowing it's right before we start. Danny, I'd like to end the show with one last marvelous quote from Still Writing. That I read on the website Brain Pickings, and it's just absolutely perfect. And I think it just describes so well what you've just been feeling. You write When writers who are just starting out ask me when it gets easier, my answer is never. It never gets easier. I don't want to scare them, so I rarely say more than that. But the truth is that, if anything, it gets harder. The writing life isn't just filled with predictable uncertainties, but with the awareness that we are always starting over again, that everything we ever write will be flawed. We may have written one book or many, but all we know, if we know anything at all, is how to write the book we are writing. All novels are failures. Perfection itself would be a failure. All we can hope is that we will fail better that we won't succumb to fear of the unknown, that we will not fall prey to the easy enchantments of repeating what may have worked in the past. I try to remember that the job, as well as the plight and the unexpected joy of the artist is to embrace uncertainty, to be sharpened and honed by it, to be birthed by it. Each time we come to the end of a piece of work, we have failed as we have leapt, spectacularly Brazenly into the unknown. Danny, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Such a pleasure talking with you.
0: Danny Shapiro's latest book is The Extraordinary, Still Writing: The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. You can find out a lot more about Danny on her website, dannyshapiro.com. Danny is spelled D-A-N-I. I'd like to thank you for listening and remember, We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.